This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash freelancership. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 170 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark and Eric Davis. And this week's special guest is Paul Jarvis. Ahoy, hoy. <laughs> oh, and I'm Reuven Lerner, uh, before I forget to mention my name. Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, so yeah, I'm Paul Jarvis. I think my title currently is Freelancer Evangelist, which sounds really fancy, even though I'm not really that much of a fancy guy. But really, I help other freelancers, mostly creative types, and I consider developers creative types as well, even though some of them don't. And I help them do business better online. So taking the skills that they have and then making them be able to turn a profit or find good clients, that sort of thing. And what's your background? Like, what did you do before this? Or what did you do in addition to this? I have worked for myself for about 17 years. Before that, I went to school for computer science. And before that, the wheel was invented. (laughs) I guess, what's the biggest problem that you see people come to you with if they're trying to run a freelancing business, if they're creative type, you know, not necessarily programmers, but programmers certainly included. Like, what do you see most often? What sorts of patterns? Well, I think the biggest pattern that I see is frustration, where they might be great, because a lot of times people start freelancing because they're good at what they do, like programmers are good programmers, or designers are good designers, that sort of thing. But they don't necessarily know the ins and outs of working for yourself and all of the many hats that you need to wear, or toques, as we like to say in Canada. So the (laughs) biggest frustration that I see is the things like, I don't know how to get my clients to listen to what I'm showing them, or I don't know how to get them to listen to the expertise that I have, or I don't know how to get them to not give awful feedback, or I don't know how to get them to pay me more, that sort of thing. So it really is the frustration around dealing with clients, and rarely is it a frustration around their skills, because the skills they have kind of locked in, it's just all the other bits and bobs that go along with working for yourself. Because most of the time, like I went to school for computer science, that most of you probably did as well. Or if there's designers that went to school, like art school or design school or that sort of thing, there really isn't that much focus on business or that sort of thing. Or if there is, it's kind of a high level working at a company sort of thing, not a, hey, maybe if you're going to work for yourself, these are some things that you should kind of take into account. So it's not really being taught anywhere. And that's really what I see the most questions and the most struggles. I live about half a mile from Rhode Island School of Design, which is a world-class design school. And I'm occasionally pulled in to mentor the graduating seniors for a, you know, just like a quick kind of cocktail party type of thing, but, you know, go up and give a talk. And and Paul's 100% right, at least in this case, they don't know anything about business, selling their art, even simple stuff like how to put up a website or even what Etsy is. Just like a complete and all-encompassing focus on the craft and absolutely nothing about how to make a living at it, which really blows my mind every time I see it. I'm surprised they don't have more, at least a modicum of a business you know, some kind of business acumen available for them to study. I mean, I went to music school and, and my major was business of music. You know, like at least in the music world, there's some notion of this, but 
you know, design, it, at least in this case, it was just totally lacking. So these kids get out and it's like, what are we going to do? We just try and get a job somewhere. I actually have a bunch of people from the Rhode Island School of Design in my course, <laughs> which is interesting. My wife actually went to school for the business of music as well, which is also interesting. Weird. Yeah. I really had no idea that was actually something you could study, although it makes a tremendous amount of sense. It seems like in some ways, if high tech weren't so like lucrative with lots of companies around, there should probably be courses like that in universities now. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest things that my wife learned, which I think could apply to most other things, is contracts and contract negotiation. So when her and I were in a band or when she was in a separate band and we were getting offered record deals, we were able to, like most musicians who are kind of freelancers as well, if they're playing music for themselves, wouldn't know what to look for in a contract. And because she had that background in business and music, she was able to be like, okay, yeah, this is awful. This word in perpetuity or two words, I guess, the worst word ever in contracts. And the same applies for freelancers as well that do more what we do. It's all of this other stuff that is just as important as the craft, but people just don't know it. And then they get out there and then they're like, uh-oh. <laughs> My synagogue was just negotiating contract. Or I don't know if negotiating is the right word, but we were handed a contract by our city for the building that we're renting. And you know, I said something to our chairman about, well, why is this paragraph in the contract? He said, oh, well, they told us this is their standard contract. And I was like, okay, that phrase, standard, this is our standard contract, has got to be the most overused one. <laughs> he was like, what do you mean? I said, okay, everyone says that, so you won't challenge it. <laughs> but if you don't know that, or if you've never been around the block a few times with contract negotiations, you'll, you'll just sort of assume, oh, well, standard contract, wouldn't want to mess with that. Yeah, I also see a lot because I've had a lawyer in my teaching part of the class that I teach for freelancers because I get a lot of questions from freelancers about contracts and legal and that. But most of them won't contact a lawyer. And I don't know I don't know why that is. The first thing I did when I started my business in the 90s was contact a lawyer, get incorporated, get a contract that I could use for clients that I could say, this is just part of the contract, don't question it, but at least it's mine. And so I feel like a lot of freelancers are scared to do that. They think like, oh, okay, if I hire a lawyer, I'm going to be charged like $300 an hour or $87 to send an email or something like that. And I think the fear kind of dissuades people from doing that. Same with accounting and doing books. There's so much that needs to be done in that when you work for yourself. And so many people don't do it right because they don't know or they don't contact professionals. Right. It's ironic, right? Like we're supposedly professionals or the freelancers are professionals. <laughs> That's what I was getting and, at. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm a professional whatever and people should not think twice about paying me, you know, whatever, a hundred bucks an hour to do my expertise for them. But yeah, then you turn around and there's this fear of suits or something. I don't know what it is, but uh, I, I did the same thing you did. I was so nervous about going out on my own that I, I had the reverse reaction. I was so nervous about it that I wanted as much help as I could get. So I got a financial advisor, I got an accountant, I got a lawyer, I asked around for referrals. I didn't skimp on it. I got not the most expensive people I could find, but I didn't pinch pennies because as someone who, you know, has built themselves out by the hour in the past, I believe that you get what you pay for, especially in professional services. So I wanted the Mercedes options. I do coaching too. And a lot of people ask, you know, oh, what should I do about this or that? Or what terms and conditions should I use? And I'm like, look, I'm nervous to even give you advice about this. My advice is go talk to a lawyer. You know, it's like, it depends on your risk profile and what you're comfortable with and what kind of clients you have, how much you trust them, how much vulnerability you want to expose yourself as or to. And, uh, you know, it's very personal. So like, I can tell you what I did, but it makes me think that 
people are going to go out and do it, which isn't necessarily the best fit for them. So anyway, just agreeing in, in all caps. <laughs> How did you start coaching creative folks? I think because I've been doing this so long, I just sort of fell into it because kind of made a name for myself in the the niche that I serve. And then because I also do things like write for Fast Company and Ink and Smashing Mag and that, people see my name. And then I just started getting inundated with emails with people asking me things like that, where I would as well, just as Jonathan said, tell people I'm not a lawyer, talk to a lawyer if you have that kind of question. But then the questions about the business and the marketing and the sales, obviously I could answer. And then I started doing some one-on-one coaching. And then I realized that I was kind of hitting a ceiling with that because I'm super introverted and doing a lot of coaching really drains me. Like if I do two coaching calls a day, that's like I can't work for the rest of the day. Like I'm just zapped. So I was like, okay, what if I do a course instead? Because then it can be a, a one-to-many relationship. And I know how to market and sell things on the internet because that's what I do. So I started that. And then I was able to get the same message and the same teaching and the same learnings out to more than just one-on-one. And then I do do interactive calls once a month as well with the class, but it's not, I'm not teaching people individually anymore. So when you say like it's a one-to-many class then, like are you recording videos and making it available to people or like what sort of format is it? Yeah, so it is video. So it's me talking over slides. There's also an audio version of that. Keynote is so good. Like I can record my presentations in that, export it to QuickTime. QuickTime lets me export it to an audio file. QuickTime also lets me export the slides to a PDF. And then I also have written lessons with each lesson. So each lesson has video, audio, slide, PDFs, written lesson, and then bonus materials kind of as needed. It's not dripped out either. It's when you buy it, you just get all of the lessons and you can kind of go through it at your own pace. That seems to be working really, really well. I don't remember the last time I got a support question, which is pretty good, but that took a lot of work to get to that. Let me just go off topic for a second here. You can record video with Keynote? Just um, <laughs> record presentation. It's awesome. Seriously. Oh my God. Okay. Well, guys, it's been a great show now that I've gotten a lot out of it. <laughs> yeah. Ruben, you can even record audio for a slide so when you go to the slide it's you talking to the slide it is crazy you know it is amazing okay that's just a little eerie (laughs) right so you can have everything all prepped and just do the webinar and not worry about saying the wrong thing or anything that's super cool anyway and so the people are asking you questions i assume you know obviously not doing your video presentations but during the month in your interactive call Yeah, so once a month I do a live Q&A with a guest. So it's a focused call, so it's about one specific topic. Last month, for example, I had my friend Rachel Rogers, who is a lawyer on the show. And I didn't actually have that much to say in that because I'm not a lawyer. But sometimes, like I had our mutual friend Kai Davis on the show, I've had Philip Morgan on the show. So we do a call where if there are questions that come up in that month around a certain topic then the students can ask them. There's also a Slack channel too that I'm not in all the time, but I do check in almost probably every other day or so. But the Slack channel is more for people talking. It has a life of its own. It exists without me having to do anything with it, which is what I really like. And people, freelancers in there are hiring each other. This woman, I think it was last week, posted that she hired a designer and developer from the Slack channel for my course. She hired a copywriter and she hired a print, like a layout designer, 
all from like the Slack channel. So everybody's kind of working with each other and hiring each other and helping with each other's problems, which is probably my favorite part. To be honest, that's the best part of the course, at least for me as the instructor, is seeing the Slack channel exist beyond me and students interacting and working with each other. That's great. How many people do you have roughly? I think about 1,600 people in the course, and there's about, uh, last time I checked, probably a bit over 400, maybe like 405, 406 people in the Slack channel, because that's an option that you don't have to buy. You don't have to participate, but it's an added bonus if you want to. Interesting. So, I mean, our topic, at least as officially listed here, is details of running a, a one-person business. And so... I mean, I know when I started my consulting company, I think I've said this before on the podcast, I had these visions of like the learner consulting towers and we were going to be huge and we were going to have thousands of people working for us. And then the bottom dropped out in 2000 of the internet business and I had to fire all the people working for me, which was like six at the time. And I was like, I am never hiring other people again, which I've gone back on now. But it sounds like you're concentrating on working with individuals who want to work as individuals. So first of all, why is that? And second of all, how do you tell people, how do you explain to people that this is probably better than trying to scale up in a massive way? Yeah. So the reason that's the type of people that I work with is because that's the type of person I am. Like I've had a web design company that's been booked months in advance for 17 years. Like I could grow or I could have grown in the past. I'm glad I didn't because I would rather be a maker than a manager. There's some people that I know who are brilliant managers and they've transitioned from being a maker to a manager. And that's great for them. I've tried that. Like I've been a creative director at a company very long time ago, but I just feel like that isn't something that I like to do. That's also something I don't know (laughs) anything about. So it'd be really hard for me to teach that to other people because it's not a topic I know, but working for yourself and finding ways to grow without growing employees is something that I'm super passionate about. It's something that I've done for myself and something that I really like to talk to other people about. So it's kind of a no-brainer that that's the audience that I like to reach. It's pretty easy to sell that as well. Just the story that you just told is, is one good example. Like I've been through a couple economic downturns and it's a lot easier to scale when it's just you. So if I don't have work for a month or something like that, then that's easy to deal with. Whereas the people that I know that have companies, their monthly burn rate effectively is quite a bit higher where they have like rent on offices, they're paying salaries, they're paying medical and all of that. Like it's stressful. Like I have a couple of friends that wish they could go back to freelancing because it's so stressful to be responsible for more than just yourself. And I would rather just like, to be honest, I'd rather just stay Peter Pan forever and just be responsible for me and not for other people. You mentioned something about marketing. Can you give a little description of how you suggest freelancers market themselves? Like, what are, I assume thing number one to do is not take out lots of Google ads. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I mean, <laughs> this, I'm sure you guys have talked about this in the past, but it's a lot of figuring out. It's impossible to market your services to everybody because by default, if you don't pick a niche, your niche is the internet or everybody. And I don't know how to market to that. Like, I can't take out television ads like Facebook during the Super Bowl or something like that. But I can, if it's a much smaller pond and I focus the type of work that I do to a very specific audience, then those people are easy to find because they spend time reading the same sites, which is why I write for the sites that I do. Or they spend time in communities or they do things where it's a lot easier to kind of profile who they are and what they do and then reach them, go hang out in the same places, go talk to them, be helpful to them, make a name for yourself in a little pool 
because I built Morris that basically if the market is big enough for that group of people that you want to focus on to have like a conference, then there's enough people to support what you do forever, basically. And it's, it's pretty much true. Like the niche that I focus on for my own web stuff is super tiny, but it's also super big. And it's people know who I am in that niche, whereas if other people in other niches don't know who I am, and that's perfectly fine. And I know so many people who do so well because they're just marketing to one specific type of person in one specific niche with a very specific, as Jonathan says, expensive problem to solve. <laughs> yeah, Morgan's paradox, right? The smaller your focus, the bigger yes. it is. Exactly. I've done research on all you guys. <laughs> <laughs> You said that's why I write for the publications I write for, and you've written for some really big publications. How did you get your foot in the door, or how would someone get their foot in the door at something like that? It's networking. It's 100% networking. And I did a test for this. So I had already written for a lot of big publications, and so I decided to like cold email 100 of them, or about 100 of them. Maybe it wasn't exactly 100. It was a lot just to see if I could pitch an idea to like submissions at or whatever the email address was or the like form on Mashable or something like that. I got one response and I kind of wish I didn't because then it would be a much better like case study. Like I got no responses, <laughs> but one person replied and published my article. But that doesn't really work. So the way that I did it and the way that most people do it, it's almost like stalking, except it's not creepy. <laughs> so if I wanted to write for a publication, I would start to look at the authors that currently write for them, start following them, start reading their personal sites. These are people that I should find interesting anyways, because I'm doing similar things. They're just doing it on a different platform. So I would start to leave comments on their site, subscribe to their newsletter, start to talk to them on social and just kind of get to know the type of people that do the type of writing on those publications. And then eventually they might read something on my own side and be like, hey, maybe you can write for us. And that's kind of how I started with writing for publications. This started with like medium level publications first. And this is years after years of me writing on my own site and not beating myself up about not being published anywhere other than my own site. And then after a while, people started to come to me and like, hey, Paul, can you write an article for us? And I'd be like, sure. And then I would start to talk to other people who would write for those similar publications and see where they're writing for. And then maybe if I had a good enough relationship with them, I would ask for the intro. And this is basically like the solid gold part of writing for publications is getting an intro to an editor from somebody that already writes for that publication. And that I think I bet a hundred percent with or a thousand percent. I don't know sports. I don't know why I use a sports analogy. But <laughs> if I get a personal intro to an editor from somebody that already writes for that person, I know I'm going to write for that publication. Whereas if I email submissions at, I think most of these publications have interns that just sit there clicking like open email, <laughs> delete email, open all day. Like I think all these big publications just have an intern that that's their job. The submission to leader, the dream killer. <laughs> so it's all. <laughs> By the way, it's funny that you say this because, like, I mean, I've been writing for Linux Journal for 20 years now, just about every month. And every so often, maybe like once every year and a half or so, I'll get emails from someone saying, Hey, would you mind introducing me to your editor? So, first of all, I've never heard of these people before. Second of all, yeah. 
I think the current editor has been there for about 10 years now. We only spoke on the phone for the first time about a month ago because we had a conference call with IBM about an ebook that they're sponsoring. Otherwise, it's just been like, I sent her my article. She sends it back saying, okay, it needs a few fixes. Like, that is the extent of our relationship. And they give me carte blanche to write. So I'm always like, well, I can introduce the editor, but I don't think it's really going to do very much. But at least now I know why people are doing this. Yeah, if you don't know that person, why would you send an intro? Like, I get emails all the time, like, oh, can you introduce me to your contact at, like, Fast Company? I'm like, no. (laughs) If we don't have a relationship, whereas, like, the people I know that I know are good writers, that I have an existing relationship with, because I'm very guarded with those, because I don't want to waste my editor's time, Mm. right? So, like, it's not just a matter of, like, oh, so-and-so writes for this publication. I'm just going to email them and see if they can introduce me. It's like, I really don't see that happening. Like, I still wouldn't ever do that. I would kind of lean on building actual relationships with people. And then if it makes sense to ask for that, if you've maybe done some things to help that person. It's almost like business karma. So it's like instead of wearing Birkenstocks and ponchos to get good karma, it's like on computers or something like that. But you need to give a little to get a little basically in business as well as if you're a hippie. (laughs) Right. So did you notice once you got, you know, an article published in a sort of old media, big time publication, like say Anchor Fast Company, did you notice that had a direct impact on, you know, your business? You mentioned being booked months and months in advance. I'm assuming those two things are related, but I'm curious. No, but I did notice because because the reason I was doing that was more from the product side of what I do. So I do sell more books and more courses when I do that sort of thing. But so that's more the audience that I'm trying to reach on there as for like the books and the products that, but I do notice a difference there. And that really catapulted audience growth for me, like newsletter subscriptions to my newsletter, like every time I'd write a post, like if I write for Smashing Magazine, I get hundreds of people that sign up the next day. Mm-hmm. Like that's a quality publication. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of these, like writing for, say, Huffington Post, like they're just a content factory. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't do anything other than me being able to say that I write for Huffington Post. Right. <laughs> so it depends on the publication. But it does, especially in the beginning, that's really what helped me build an audience quickly was getting my words in front of lots of different publications, not just on my own website. Right. So speaking of your main business, I imagine that's probably of more interest to the audience because the coaching thing's a little bit meta. Is there anything you can point to that you did to get yourself booked so solid for design work? I would imagine a lot of people heard that comment earlier and were like, whoa, how, you know, booked months in advance for 17 years, that's insane. Yeah, I keep raising my rates a lot too. (laughs) So that really is the result of focusing on a very specific type of person that I want to work with. And then the main reason that people find me to do web work is because they've seen my name in that industry. They've seen my name at the bottom of sites that they like. I've been able to, because I focused on the niche that I focused on for so long, I've been able to work with the top people in that audience in that like little niche. So people, if they're in that niche, they know who I am. They don't think about, and this is basically the best possible position for you to be in as a freelancer. When people think about getting a website done or fixing something in their online business, they think of me. It takes a lot of work to get there, but it's not difficult work. I turn down work, say, from working for an insurance agency because that's not the audience that I want to serve. And I did this in the, a lot of people are like, oh, that's all well and good for you now because you're in a position to do that. But I did that in the beginning. 
I was pretty focused on the type of work I wanted. If I had rent to pay, then whatever, I'm just going to take on whatever work I need to. But as soon as I passed my oh shit number for the month, like I need this to like eat food and have a roof over my head, then I would be super specific with the type of people that I worked with. And I was always creating. And I saw when I first started writing years ago, I noticed that most web designers were writing for other web designers. And I was like, other web designers aren't giving me money. Right. Why don't I write for the type of people that I want to give me money? So I started writing super specific articles about people who had struggles with building their online business. I wrote a book about it, about building your online business. That's the worst title ever as well. But I started creating content for the audience that I wanted and that I wanted to keep getting. And so I built my name up as an expert by creating tons and tons of content in that. I built my name up because I had my name at the bottom of a lot of websites and I helped a lot of my clients become fairly successful. Like it wasn't me who made them successful, obviously, but I did everything in my power to help them succeed in their business because what my clients did really well, and some of them have like eight figure businesses now. So their name is out there all over the place. And my name is associated with them because I helped in one small part of their business. So it becomes so much easier. Like I don't need to sell. I basically just need to talk to somebody and be like, okay, does it seem like it's a good fit for the type of work you want? And do we seem like we have an understanding of what my role is and what your role is? And then maybe we can work together. Yep. When you say that you decided to focus on a certain niche, which is certainly something we talk about a lot on the podcast and we hear from, do we say, the most successful freelancers, what specifically do you focus on? Like, are you focusing on technology? Are you focusing on a business area? Are you focusing on a, a size of business, some combination? Yeah. So for me, I really like to work with people who are their brand. So they may have a team, but what they do falls under the umbrella kind of of their name. And also they do 100% of their business on the internet because the people that make their money on the internet have the most money to spend on internet things, right? And then for me, it's mostly like I work almost primarily with women. And I've done this for a very, very long time. And what I found was there wasn't a lot of resources for women and business quite a while ago. There's still not, but it it is catching up. And there were some people building products for women doing business things. And I was like, this is cool. And I like to do it because especially initially, women entrepreneurs are much more interested in doing things their way instead of this is just the way it's supposed to be done. I read it on some listicle article on Inc. Magazine or something. So the women that I was working with were doing much more interesting things than anybody else I was working with. And that's kind of like the niche that I serve now is it's predominantly women who have their business completely on like all their money is generated through the internet. And the person that I work with is the brand and the business. I mean, I mean, that's pretty specific, right? But like there are clearly more than enough of those to keep you going now for quite some time. Oh my goodness. Yeah. There's (laughs) tons. Right. Is that like 50% of the world are women? Something like that. I mean, that's not, that's not my audience because not just women are my audience. It's much more specific than that, like I said. But people that are building products for them and making things in interesting and unique ways, definitely. Like that's, it's huge. Like I said, it's huge. 
So first of all, like, I think it's interesting that you've literally and explicitly cut out, right? It's not that you're advertising necessarily to 50% of the world, although that's true, but you're excluding 50% of the world as well. And that has not hurt your business at all. On the contrary, it's just helped you to focus and get more. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't do anything. It's so funny because it, that's the gut reaction to people who don't focus, who just want to work with anybody and everybody, is that, oh, if I focus, then... I'm going to limit myself. And that's not necessarily the case because if I needed the work and a guy or somebody not in my audience came to me to get work done and I needed work, I'd be like, okay. So the work coming in, I can say yes or no to and it doesn't matter the audience. But in terms of what I put out there, what I content market, all of my outbound marketing efforts are very focused. But if work comes to me that I just need to take, I'm going to take it. So it doesn't limit me in any way whatsoever. It's just the focus that I have pushing my stuff out there is what's focus. What would you say to people who maybe are listening to this that they're having the fear? You know, they're just scared to do this. They're nodding along like, yeah, that makes sense, but it won't work for me because of some reasons. You know, you, I assume that this is a at least a decent sized chunk of the, the course. How do you, yeah. like, what language do you use to reassure people that this is a good thing to do? Is it just like a, a series of examples? Like, you know, I'm sure between the bunch of us, we know, you know, two dozen people that have done this and just rave about it, but still it's a minority position. So how do you convince people that they should really take the leap into a niche? Yeah, so it's a few things. There's a bit of a psychological aspect where fear and action can exist in tandem. And I know for myself and for a lot of creative people, there's a lot of self-doubt and imposter syndrome and all of that, especially when it comes to focusing on a niche, because when you focus on a niche, you are in fact an expert, and that scares a lot of people. And it doesn't really need to. So there's a bit of a psychological aspect to it. But there's also just like, I can <laughs> I can logic my ideas out fairly good. So it really comes down to what I was saying in the beginning. Like, if you don't have a focus, your focus by default is everyone. So how do you market to everyone? Because I don't know how to do that. But then if you start to focus on a specific niche, then you can find where they are. And I break it down into a few lessons because I think it's that important. We're figuring out the first thing you need to figure out is your purpose and the value that you have for a specific audience. The second thing you need to do is do a bit of research into the audience. And the third thing is figuring out what the problem that you're solving for that audience is. It's just like when people hire me to do their website, like I don't talk about things like PHP or WordPress or grid systems or typography. All we talk about initially is their business, what problems they have, what's working, what's not, and then how I can use the skills that I have to solve those problems. And so design and development is really just an output. It's not the reason and when you start to shift your mindset like that, it becomes a lot easier to focus on a niche because you're familiar with the problems that people have. Like if you only work with business coaches, you would probably understand after two or three or five or 50 projects that you've done, the problems that most have and how to overcome those problems because now you've built up a track record. So now if you're talking to a new potential coach who wants to hire you, say, to build their website, it's like, well, here's something that I did six months ago for so-and-so and now their revenue is double. Or a year ago, I did this one thing for this coach's mailing list and now their signups have increased by a certain amount. So once you start to niche and focus, then you start to be able to build all of these tangible results which sell for you. 
Like you don't need to pitch yourself as like, oh, you need to hire me for this reason. It's just like, let me tell you a story <laughs> about this previous client. Right. And here's what I did for them. Like even on my site, when I had my uh, portfolio up, it's, it's offline at the moment because I'm focusing on other things. But all of the testimonials on the portfolio page were business testimonials. The one at the top was Paul Jarvis helped me build a million dollar business from scratch with his web work or something like that. And it's like, I don't need much more than that because yeah. people read that and they're like, oh, Paul Jarvis did this for you. How can I get in touch with this Paul Jarvis? Right. And they'll pay you anything less than a million dollars to get there. <laughs> exactly. And then once you start to get more of those testimonials and you start to build tangible results, that's actually another thing that I think a lot of freelancers do wrong is testimonials and case studies. A lot of freelancers ask for a testimonial as soon as the project is finished or when the website launches or something like that. And the testimonial you're going to get at that point is so-and-so is a great designer. So and so-and-so is a pleasure to work with. And that does nothing. That makes people think that you're a nice person. I don't really trust every nice person that I know. Most of them are hippies or flakes. But if you develop a schedule for following up with the clients that you've worked with in the past, like say a month down the road or two months down the road or six months down the road, you can start to see like, what results have you seen since I helped you launch this? What are the tangible benefits of the work that I did for you now that your audience has had this for this amount of time? And then you're going to start to see testimonials from clients that are the result of tangible things happening instead of just so-and-so is such a great designer. So then you can start to build really good success stories, case studies, testimonials, and things that you can start to bring into conversations when you're pitching work to a client. Right. Couldn't agree more with that. Obviously, we're pretty much on the same page across the board on all of this stuff. But I recently, uh, I don't do that much dev anymore. I'm, I'm definitely not a designer, web developer, but I don't do that much of it anymore. But as an experiment, I recently took on a dev project. And part of the, you know, and the whole thing it was a whole thing, like, what's the, you know, somebody got referred to me and they said, you know, oh, we want you to do this mobile redesign. And, and my first question was, why? How are we going to know if it's a success? what is it that you're trying to achieve here, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole conversation was about outcomes, not deliverables. And then in the actual proposal, I explicitly said that they're welcome to give me design feedback, but I'm going to retain veto power on it because I'm the expert with that stuff. And if they are telling me to make the logo bigger, then that's going to potentially going to impact the outcomes that are stated, the stated goals of the project, you know, and it was sort of a take it or leave it proposition. And, you know, they accepted it. Because no one really cares. Like everybody has an opinion of what it should look like. But, you know, if you ask me my opinion about something, I will give you an opinion and I will defend it vigorously. But then if you say, do you really care about this? I'll say, no, you're asking me about like what color lamp to put in the bedroom. I couldn't care less, but I will fight about what the best color is if you ask me. And I think that's what happens in a lot of design meetings is people are like, they get into this like, oh, well, are you guys happy with the color of this button? And now you're forcing the client to do your job, which is to know what the right design is, or at least test and find out what the right design is. You shouldn't even be asking them what they're not the expert of the head. They're the expert of making money with their business. And it works out great where it has worked out great for me. If you keep the conversation at that level and you make it clear that, you know, if there's some things that they recommend that are perhaps relevant to their audience or their customers that, you know, maybe they're in a type of industry like sports that I know zero about, and I need some feedback about how users are going to react to a particular, you know, label on a button. Sure. I'll ask that. 
but we're not getting into color, you know, a discussion about like what shade of blue we should use for the lines in between table rows. Exactly. And that really comes down to clients don't know how to give good feedback because they know their business, not our business. So if you teach your clients to give good feedback, you will get just like you do, Jonathan, which is what I do as well. And I actually give my clients a document that says, this is how you give feedback. This is the type of feedback that I can't do anything about. And what I find with that, and I get so many freelancers like, can't believe you have the guts to do that. It's like, I can't believe you have the guts not to do that. It's like, I get good feedback from my clients instead of things like make the logo bigger or make that blue bluer or move that button a pixel to the left. I don't do anything with that type of feedback because it's not, that doesn't relate to their business goals or to outcomes in any way. And if you teach your clients to give good feedback, then by golly, (laughs) you're going to get good feedback from, or at least better feedback from them. And if they give you feedback that you can't really do anything with or that you don't want to act on, you can talk to them about it. Like I think a lot of freelancers are scared, like this is a person that's giving me money. I (laughs) I don't want to question them. Then you get thrown into the role by default of a laborer. So the client is going to tell you how to do your job and you just have to do it. And that's basically the worst case scenario for any freelancer is to be in that place. Whereas if you're regarded as an expert who knows what they're doing and the client hired you to do the work and to give your expert opinion and feedback on the work that you're doing, then they're not going to question it as much. They're more just going to guide you in terms of what works or doesn't work for their business instead of let's make this like 5% bluer or change the font to acrylic like or like just <laughs> useless useless stuff yeah when i get feedback like that that's like oh what if we had a WYSIWYG toolbar and my response once the project started if i because they'll still sometimes do that even though you've explained that that i just say what's the business case you know explain to me the business case because there might be a really good reason that they have to do that or there might be a much better way to achieve the goal that doesn't involve you know, messing up the, whatever, my uh, data model by adding rich formatted text to the database or whatever it is. Like, I'll have some reason where there's no way I am going to add this thing that they specifically requested. But, you know, it's them trying to help you, actually. They're, they're like, oh, we have this problem that we're not going to tell you, but we found a solution for it already. So here's the solution we'd like you to put in. And it's incumbent yeah, on and- you as the expert to be like, okay, well, what's the business case for that? Because there might be an even better way to do it. Exactly. And that's really teaching a client, and this is what I teach in the course, is how to get your client to give you descriptive feedback instead of prescriptive feedback. So the crux of it is get the client, if the client doesn't like something, get them to describe what the problem is and not tell you how to fix it. Because they're giving you money to use your skills to fix their problems. So if they tell you how to fix their problems, they shouldn't be paying you because they could just do it themselves or hire somebody on Fiverr to to do it. So getting your clients to give descriptive instead of prescriptive feedback is like night and day when you're working with other people. Absolutely. I think we should head into the picks, guys. Jonathan, do you have any picks for this week? Just one. The Brennan Dunn's Double Your Freelancing Conference is coming up next week, if I've got my dates right. It's, anyway, it's... It's September. our next week. It's there today. Is it really? Okay. Well, <laughs> that's fine, because what I'm going to tell you about is if you are not in you know, Virginia in the United States, or if you're hearing this after the conference, there is a $99 video available of all of the conference sessions, not unedited, but, you know, 
complete unabridged videos of the conference that are at a very convoluted Gumroad URL that we can put in the show notes, but I won't bother reading to anyone. But there are a bunch of speakers, including myself, and you know names that every longtime listeners of the show will recognize many of the names. So uh, I think that's a great deal, and people should check it out. Yeah, absolutely. I can't make it to the conference, even though I really wanted to. So I got the video package. So, cool. so I'll be able to see you, Jonathan. There you go. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, you got any picks for us? My biggest pick right now is completely not business related, but it's this show, Mr. Robot, which I was making fun of. I heard the name of it, and then I read the description on iTunes, and I was like, this is going to be the dumbest show ever. And then Kai Davis was like, watch an episode and then tell me what you think. And I watched an episode and I was hooked. It's actually like the way that it's not like they're hacking isn't like 3D models of things that they have some weird GUI that they're typing in and hacking into systems. It's like actual terminals and scripts and stuff like that. It's a really, really good show. So that's probably my favorite pick right now is the show Mr. Robot. Cool. I got a pick for this week also. I I think a number of months ago, I picked uh, my previous cell phone. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's pretty good. It's pretty cheap, but, you know, it's pretty good. And then as I was standing online in the uh, Beijing airport, I guess about a month ago, I took the phone out of my pocket and the screen had cracked when it had worked perfectly a few hours before, a few minutes before. So I went in search of a new cell phone and I've been using, I guess, for a month now, the Huawei P8 Lite. And it's also cheap, but not as cheap as the previous one. But I'm really, really happy with it. I feel like now... Wow, so this is what happens when you actually spend a little extra money on a phone or you're not a total ridiculous cheapskate. And it, it works, it's fast, it's nice, I get good internet connections, I get good phone call connections. Really, I'm uh, super, super happy with it. So if you're looking for a new cell phone, and you know there are not many vendors out there, one to consider. Well, I guess that does it for this week on The Freelancer Show. Paul, where can people find out more about you? The course that we've been talking in and out about is called The Creative Class. It's creativeclass.io. If you like to read articles about freelancing and creativity and brain ponderings, then I have a weekly newsletter called The Sunday Dispatches, and that's at pjrvs.com. Or if you just search my name on Google on the first two or three pages. So it's, I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. Excellent. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Paul, so much for your advice and suggestions. And we will see you guys all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.